0: Uh, Take your Bibles and uh, turn in them to uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, is the very first book of the Bible, and Genesis 7. And as you're turning there, just uh, uh, a note for you as the congregation. Many of you are aware that in the last uh, few weeks, uh, Josh and Jamie Rivers have returned from Turkey. Uh, And they returned um, after having served uh, just over nine years there. And returned uh, fairly hastily just because of some circumstances and they're now working to establish themselves or re-establish themselves in the Parksville area and uh, establish themselves amongst us as God's church. Uh, they were supported by us as a church and that support will continue until the end of the year. Uh, they have been supported by the organization that sent them WEC, but that support is now beginning to um, uh, conclude. And uh, this past week, both boards met, the elder board and the deacon met, and Deacon's board met. and we had an opportunity to talk about their return. And uh, with just joyful unanimity, we wanted to provide an opportunity for you as God's people to welcome them home um, with a financial gift. And so on uh, September the 10th, which is our welcome back Sunday, we are going to, make provision for you to give a welcome back gift to Josh and Jamie. Uh, It's an unreceivable gift, but it's simply a a way for us as God's people to thank them for their service. I was reading Epaphras, and uh, what Paul says about Epaphras, I believe is true of Josh and Jamie. They are our dear fellow servants who were faithful ministers of Christ on our behalf. And so you can pray about this, think about this, and then uh, uh, in two weeks from now, we will have a, a place for you to uh, just deposit uh, something that you think would be of help for them uh, as they reestablish themselves here at Parksville. Um, so consider that. Uh, let's read Genesis chapter 7. Uh, just for you, if you're visiting, know we just haven't dropped here out of the blue. Um, we have been working our way through Genesis 1 to 11, and this is now something like our 22nd message here. So this is just continuing from uh, weeks behind. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, which were with them, entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all livestock, according to its kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. When we left off last week, we left off with Noah having built the ark according to all that the Lord commanded and I just thought I would take a moment and throw out to you, uh, maybe what I find is an answer to well, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? Uh, I'm not told in the Bible. Uh, uh, I don't think it was 120 years. The 120 years was a period of grace. The Bible tells us that Noah was 500 years old when his sons were born to him. That was means when he, he began to have his boys. And it's important, for the command of God was given to Noah when his sons were married, it seems, in Genesis 6:18, God comes to him and says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Seems like Noah has uh, was spoken to by God after he had his sons and after they were married, warning him that a flood was to come and to build an ark. So he likely would have been 530, give or take. So that gives them about 70 years to construct the ark. It's a very doable build. Uh, Consider the strength that they would have had. Consider that they had all manner of tools, which are described in Genesis chapter 4. There is a place right now in Kentucky where there is a full-scale ark that has been built. And uh, it is called, uh, the place is called the Ark Encounter. You can actually go online and see pictures of this. You can go down to Kentucky and walk through this ark that has been constructed. And they say that it took a crew of, a crew that they had to build this uh, full-scale ark in less than three years. I was talking to somebody that left this morning, and they had been in Europe, and I believe it was Holland, they said, an ark was built by a man, his wife, and children, um, a full-scale replica in Europe. So it is possible to build this easily within 70 years um, of construction. So I just say that for you to understand that uh, there are answers to some of these questions that aren't provided exactly, uh, or as we would say in the Bible. When we come to Genesis chapter 7 now, the ark has been built, and it's quite a terrifying text. It's a difficult text in many ways to work yourself through. The magnitude of God's judgment upon the earth that is unleashed through the flood is difficult for us to comprehend or even imagine. Even in these last weeks, we have witnessed devastation in Hawaii and devastation down in California and devastation over in Europe on local scales, which is pretty unimaginable. A number of years ago, there was a tsunami that hit the coast of Thailand and hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives in that natural evil and it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the magnitude of such loss of life. What is described in Genesis chapter 6 is God's response to worldwide moral decay, the blotting out of the entire earth, of everything that the Lord had made that had the breath of God in it. There are those um, who have tried to do the figures of what was the world's population. And it can be quite easily done, actually, with calculations that we use today to determine population and population growth. There are numbers that you can use, and they have done this for the first uh, 1,600 years from Adam to Noah. And there are estimates everywhere from um, hundreds of millions to, to close to 7 billion people, the amount of people that are on the earth today. This was a heavily populated body of land by the time Noah's flood came. You only need to think about the people of Israel. When they came to Egypt, there were 70 of them that came, Israel's family. And in about 160, 170 years, there were over 2 million. Uh, Populations can grow rapidly, even under normal circumstances um, amongst amongst humankind. In these texts that we have read, Moses describes a great flood which covered the earth and wiped out the entire human race, apart from eight people who God preserved. Apart from wrestling with it simply as a historical reality, part of the reason why it will matter for us to come to a conclusion that this is a historical reality is because God uses the flood to warn us about the final judgment that will come upon the earth with fire at the end of this age. Jesus himself says, concerning the day and the hour, the day and the hour when he will return back to this earth as he has promised. It says, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The historical flood is used to provide a warning of the certainty of God's promised future judgment to come upon this earth. Peter says, and notice the language Peter uses, if God did not spare the ancient world Notice he doesn't name a city. The very next sentence, he says, if God also didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, he could have very easily have named a city or two cities. In fact, uh, um, the, the, in, um, was it Cain named the first city on the earth after his firstborn son? So there were cities with names. But Peter doesn't do that. He says, if God did not spare the ancient world, But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, when the heavens and the earth that now exist, the heavens and the earth, not Parksville, not London, not uh, Spain, even not a, a country, but when the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Loved ones, the catastrophic event that is described in Genesis chapter 7 is an event that not only happened in history amongst real humankind, but it serves to drive home for us the reality that we need to take seriously the promised judgment of God that is going to fall upon this world and the heavens at the end of this age. So we come to the text then. And in the first five verses, it's God speaking. And it's language that we're familiar with. God, uh, God said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. This is a command. It's in the imperative. It's not an option for Noah and his family. Noah had to obey God. It wasn't, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. God commanded, commanded him, Noah, you need to go into the ark. And it's a fascinating thing that, that he, God describes to Noah why he is being preserved. He says, Noah, you are to go into the ark, you and your household. for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me or that you are righteous before me in this generation. God saw something in Noah. And now it's important that we understand that what God saw in Noah was not his works. It was not the fact that Noah had constructed the ark. What God saw in Noah was a man that obeyed him, was a man that trusted him, was a man who by faith believed that God had said, I am going to destroy this earth with a flood. You need to build an ark. And Noah believed God. This is what Hebrews tells us. By faith, Noah constructed an ark, even though it was something that had never been seen. And it is important that we understand there are there are different kinds of righteousness that are articulated in the Bible. Paul in Romans chapter ten speaks about these righteousness uh, paths of righteousness which are mutually exclusive or exclusive. He says there is a righteousness of God, and there is a righteousness of man. And writing to the Israelites, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Man's righteousness sets his own bar. It says, well, I will accomplish this. And and if I accomplish this, then I'm a good person. Have you ever sat beside somebody and they have said to you, well, I'm a pretty good person. And it's a relative statement. It's good in compared to this person, or good in compared comparison to that person, or good according to their own standards. But as we know, it will fall horribly short of God's standard of goodness and morality. And so there's a human standard which we set is our own righteousness, and we believe if we accomplish that, then God will accept us. But God says there is no, none righteous, no, not one. Not a single one of us will ever fulfill the righteous standard of God. And then there is that righteous standard of God, which is absolute perfection. And the only way we will ever be accepted by God is if we stand before him in perfection. Well, how does that righteous perfection come to us? If it doesn't come to us by our works and by our achievements... It has to be given to us by God. And that's what the Bible explains to us. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made Christ, his son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. What does that mean? That means that God took all of our, our attempts at righteousness, all of our failings, all of our sinfulness, and he lifted it off of us, and he put it on his son, Jesus Christ. And so Christ bore all of our sin. Christ bore all of our failed attempts at achieving the righteousness of God. Christ bore all of our guilt. Christ bore all of our shame. And he bore it to the cross where on the cross God punished him for our unrighteousness and for our failure at the standard of God's righteousness. And Christ bore our curse and bore our penalty. And he died in our place. And then what did God do? It's this great exchange. God took our sin and put it on Christ, but God took Christ's perfection, Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect obedience to the standard of God. He took that and he placed that on us so that then we are now seen as righteous before God. When God looks at us, he sees us as he sees Christ. With perfect righteousness, perfectly acceptable in his sight. And so when Noah put his faith and trust in God, God did that transaction for Noah. And so when it says, of all people, you are righteous, is what God says, I see you as perfect. And because of your perfection, which I see upon you by your faith in me, you and your family enter into the ark. And he says, then, for. You are righteous before me in this generation. And then he says, take with you then clean and unclean animals. Why clean and unclean animals? Well, there's a a few ways, as you will see when you read through uh, some of the rest of uh, the the Pentateuch and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Moses begins to distinguish um, uh, animals that God has said, these ones you can eat and these ones you can't eat. These ones you can touch and these ones you can't touch. He also talks about um, what we can wear and um, what we, uh, 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 how we dress and that these things mark us out or set us apart. And so the standards of clean and unclean will begin to be applied to Israel to mark them apart or set them apart from the world in which they live. Just as today, you and I are to be different from the world in which we live There is a standard of holiness which which God's put before us, and he says, walk before me, imitate me, don't love the world, don't lust for the world, Uh, battle the world and all its draw and its temptation for you. Talk differently, walk differently, dress differently, think differently. And so just as God expected Israel to be distinct from the world so that they would see that they were God's special possession, So God expects you and I, who have responded to the call of the gospel and put our trust in Christ, to walk differently, to live differently, to be apart from the world. And then secondly, these clean animals were the ones that God had said, you can use these for sacrifice. And we know when Noah got off the ark, one of the first things that he did was he built an altar and he sacrificed to the Lord. So God was already preparing the means through which there would be a distinction for the people, the means through which there would be a sacrifice, and thirdly, that there would be a means through which the earth would be repopulated with animal life. Why? Again, for, God says, in seven days, I'm going to send rain on the earth. That's a week's notice. This is the final sort of word of grace from God. Not only to Noah, but anyone who would talk to Noah. Noah, um, what are you doing? Why is that thing built there? Well, because God has said he's going to flood the earth. Oh, really, Noah? And when's that going to happen? In seven days. It was the last window of grace and mercy. It was the final opportunity to make provisions for uh, all that would be needed to go onto the ark and for the animals that God would bring onto the ark. It's seven days that Noah was given to understand that this flood was sure and certain to come. We, too, live in the certain reality that the coming of Christ is near. There is marks and evidence throughout the New Testament which describe things that we are to look for that mark the nearness of the coming of the Lord. And we are to watch and we are to wait and we are to lift our eyes towards heaven because we know that very soon Christ is going to return to this earth for all of those who have trusted in him. Jesus said, "For the frig, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as it branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So and also you see all these things, and these things are described in Matthew 24 and described in Mark 13 or described in 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, evidences that, that point to the nearness of the coming of Christ. When you see all these things, know that he is near at the very gate. Do you believe that the coming of Christ is near? Why do you believe that? Because God has given all kinds of indications in the heavens and on the earth that the return of Christ is near. And it says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. That was a demonstration again of his righteousness in verse 5. By faith, Noah entered the ark. It's one thing to build an ark. It's another thing to enter the ark. It's another thing if you're here to know about Christ. Some of you maybe are here and you've heard about Christ and you know you know about Christmas. and You know about the birth of the baby and you know about this man who lived a pretty good life. It's one thing to know about Christ. It's another thing to enter into Christ. It's another thing entirely to say, I will put the full weight of my hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save me. It's not enough to know Christ. You have to put your trust in Christ. And so Noah not only built the ark, but he entered into the ark. He believed God. And that's what we see in verses 6 to 10 is the entering into the ark. This is the embarkment process. It took seven days, as we have described here in the Bible. And it was the 600th year of Noah's life. Basically, Genesis uh, 6, the last part of 6, 7, 8, and 9 are 100 years of Noah's life. And it describes this, um, this, no, this 100th year, the, the, the 600th year of Noah's life. And it was the course of one year and 11 days. And it says that Noah and his family went into the ark to escape from the waters of the flood. And notice again the word of obedience. As God had commanded. Noah had made provisions. They had gathered all the provisions. They had prepared the ark. They had built the ark. It was finally concluded. This embarkment process took seven days. There is a cost for obeying the Lord, but it is what is required of you and I as well. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what should set us apart from everyone else is our obedience to the commands of God. In Revelation chapter 12, we have described there the hatred and the anger of Satan towards the offspring of the woman, those who have put their trust in Christ, and this is how it's described. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the west of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you find obedience hard? Do you find obedience costly? Do you find that there's a battle in you when you are wrestling with whether or not you should obey? I can't remember if it's First or Second Peter, but it says there, I'm abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Do you feel like you are in a battle when you submit yourself to the word of the Lord? Part of that is because there is an evil one who is out to destroy you and I. And to crush us and to lead us away from obedience into disobedience. And in Revelation 14, 12, here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of the Lord and their faith in Jesus. What is the mark of a saint? And anyone who puts their trust in Jesus is a saint. What is a mark of a saint? Obedience to the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Thirdly, there is an extraordinary, catastrophic day. It's intriguing, is it not, when you come to verse 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life. We know that already, but then it's even more precise. In the second month, on the seventh day, or on the seventeenth day. The second month, the seventeenth day of the six hundredth year of Noah's life. Why the detail? Details like this are usually only reserved to kings in the Bible. Just to mark an accomplishment or an event that happens in the day. One of the issues or reasons is to drive home the point that this is a historical reality. This is not a joke. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. What is being described here is human history. And on a very particular day in time and space, to be exact, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month and the 17th day of his life, the flood came. On that exact day, judgment fell. It's a historical day in human history. And what a day it was. It says, on that day, on that day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. I don't know if, we we can't, I can't imagine what happened on that day. You, t- you take the tsunami that hit Thailand a number of years ago. Multiply that exponentially in the upheaval and the demonstration that was unleashed through that single tidal wave. We'll magnify that now by all the subterranean waters and lakes exploding upward. And even today, there, is, there are massive subterranean lakes in our world today. But imagine those at the command of God when he unleashes those and he turns the ground upside down. As new mountain ranges are formed, as the continent would have been divided into the world in which we now know it, as the water bursted upward and folded pieces of land, large pieces of land on top of other pieces of land, the destruction would have been staggering. This is nothing less than uncreation. Remember, you go back to Genesis 1 verse 2, and how is the earth described? It says, And waters covered the face of the deep. And what's one of the very first things that God did when he started to create? He separated the waters below and the waters above. And he created dry land, and he put boundaries to how far the water could go. Here, God is undoing creation. And he's turning it back into that primordial chaos. And it says, and the heavens above poured down. They were opened. It's like the monsoon seasons that we hear about and the hurricanes that we hear about at various points in the world were unleashed all at once massive monsoons, massive hurricanes as the sky let go of all the water that the clouds contained. Do you think of the amount of water, the tons of water that right now are floating all around this earth in the clouds above us? All of that unleashed on that day. Think of California right now. In just a single day, they had the equivalent of two years of rain. Now, that's not a ton in California necessarily but two years of rain in a single day. That's a stunning amount of water and you see the devastation and the damage created by simply that as new land courses are marked as the whole geography is changed as landslides happen. Think about the devastation that occurred in the world God had made when he removed all the boundaries all the barriers, and returned the earth to what it was before he separated the waters from the dry land. And it says, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, the earth convulsed. The earth heaved. The earth was drenched. says, on that very same day, the same day that the flood began, Noah was sent into the ark. So there was a day, you know, and this amazes me, you know, that the world woke up on that day and always as it could be. And on that day, all the preparations were made and Noah went in with his family and all the animals finally into the ark. And at some point in that day, God unleashed judgment on the earth. How did Noah get all the animals to come to the ark? We've all thought about that. You've all seen sort of pictorial demonstrations. Of that. I think the same way that God brought all the animals to Adam to name. It says in Genesis chapter 1, God brought the animals to Adam. Two by two. Here comes the zoo. I just made that up. <laughs> and uh, Adam starts to name them. So in the same way. God who made the animals, God who commands the animals, God who sends whales to swallow men, God who sends ravens to feed men, God who puts donkeys in the path of wayward prophets and they speak, God who knows when a bird falls from the side, that God draw all the animals to Noah and Noah just ushered them into the ark that he had prepared. And then verse 16 And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God, Elohim, commanded. God, the all-powerful one. God, the self-existed one. And the Lord, Yahweh, shut him in. Do you understand that? Noah didn't have a big latch and a few latches, and you know it's like an airplane, and you, you pull the door shut. The stewardess pulls the door shut. God shut him in. I don't know if it was a thud. You know, I don't know if God picked up that huge one entrance into the ark and just kind of flipped it shut. doesn't tell us. It just says God shut him in. Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Loved ones, Peter is clear. He says, the day of the Lord will come. Not only Peter, but Paul. Paul says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. As as I said earlier, it's not an entirely unforeseen event. For we ought not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And then Paul tells us what must occur before the day of the Lord happens. Luke describes the day of the Lord this way, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. The question is, will you be shut into Christ on that day? There's no other way to be preserved in the coming judgment of God than that God shut you into his son. It's not your work. It's the work of God. It's the work of God that shuts us into Christ and preserves us from his coming judgment. When you trust Christ, you are sealed, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the same thing as saying you were shut in. And then it says, as you walk in the world, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, the day when God preserves us from the coming fire that will fall on the earth. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor the powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Loved ones, don't try and ride out the coming fire in a vessel of your own choosing. Don't try and dig some pit in your backyard and put some storage container there and think, and I'll ride out God's judgment at the end of this age. Your only safety is to be in Christ. And when you're in Christ, God will shut you in and he will seal you and you will be protected and preserved from the sure and certain judgment that is coming. And then the judgment is described in verse 17 to 24. These are are really hard verses to think about and even to read. The scale is almost impossible for us to comprehend. The language is clear, though. The phrase, on the earth, is used again and again and again and again. Not on the city, not on this local place, but on the earth. Verse 19, all the high mountains under the whole heavens. That's pretty universal. That's pretty substantial. We're covered The amount of water is mentioned again and again. Waters increased. Waters increased greatly. Waters prevailed. Waters prevailed above the mountains. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That word prevailed is a word that's used often to describe warriors in warfare. And it has to do with the strength and the vitality of the successful warriors who conquer the enemy. Here it's saying that the the waters of God were successful in covering and conquering the earth. And then in verses 21 to 23, you have the devastation described. All flesh died that moved on the earth. All swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. All mankind. This is an undoing of the fifth and the sixth days of creation. This is massive what God is doing here. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was a breath of life died. He blotted everything out that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. I can't see any warrant to say this was anything other than a universal worldwide flood. God returned the earth to its original Primordial chaos described in Genesis 1, verse 2. So why? Why? Why such destruction? Why such judgment? It's not that the Lord had a bad day. It's not that God just kind of woke up one morning and was just really ticked off. We're saying that God is a holy God. There is no impatience with him. There is no unrighteousness in him. Rather, it says in verse 3 of chapter 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil all the kind. The issue was the moral wickedness and rebellion, the constant internal disregard, hatred towards, rebellion against God. And this is what will bring about the final judgment of God at the end of this age, Thessalonians describes those that these as those who would not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, those who refused to love the truth and be, be saved. You read the book of Revelation, which I just believe describes the, the, the age in which we live, and it says, Therefore, all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. That, that's a way of saying spiritual adultery. All the nations. And the kings of the earth, not the kings of London or the kings of of Egypt or uh, the kings of Ottawa. All the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of his luxurious living. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as the heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. In Revelation 13, there's two beasts described. The beast of the sea, it says, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, and all who dwell on the earth will worship of everyone whose name was not written. Before the foundation of the world in the book of life was slain. The land beast, the second beast that comes, says it exercises all authority of the first beast in its present and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast and it deceives those who dwell on the earth. And then Revelation 14, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality, Another angel followed them. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The psalmist writes, who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is awesome as the fear of you deserves. The world is as it was in Noah's day wickedness abounding. One last text is from Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. This is a way of, one way of saying God has been patient. God has been merciful. God has been gracious. God does not want anyone not to come to faith in him. God is holding back this final day of repentance But it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day. It's not a random day. It's not, well, this one's, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, today is the day to trust in him. Today is the day to turn to Jesus and say, save me, for there is salvation in no other name under heaven but in Jesus Christ. Today is the day to leave here having been shut in by God into Christ Jesus. Today is the day to leave here with the full assurance that you will be preserved from the sure and certain coming of judgment of God that is going to fall on this heaven's and the earth. He commands you to repent. It's not an option. It's not a, well, I'll think about this. Well, you know, there might be another option. Well, I might be able to save myself. No, God is giving you a moment today to obey him and turn to Jesus Christ and say, save me. I can't save myself. It's only those who are in Christ who have trusted in him and received his righteousness Who will be preserved through judgment? Loved ones, God is to be heard. God is to be obeyed. God is to be believed. God is to be trusted. And God is to be feared. The psalmist gives us his perspective on judgment. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Joy, because God will judge the earth in righteousness. Father, we thank you for your word today. Again, I'm not sure that this is what we woke up this morning thinking that we would hear when we came to be with the people of God. But it's something that is sure and certain. This is a promise that we know will be fulfilled. That there is a day and an hour, there is a fixed day in which you will judge the earth in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this period of grace that you have extended to us to hear the gospel this period of grace that you have given to us that we might leave off our own attempts at salvation, that we might leave off our ignorance and we would look to Jesus Christ and say, save me. And in that act, be shut in by God into Christ, sealed forever and ever, brought safely to the new heavens and the new earth to be prepared. Help us, I pray in Christ's name, to believe this. Amen.